This morning, we are starting in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The title of the sermon this morning is The Triumph of the Gospel. For you note-takers, here's the three, t- the three uh, points I want to work through this morning. The triumph of the gospel through the work of Christ. The triumph of the gospel through the power of the Spirit. And the triumph of the gospel through our inheritance. We're going to see a lot of details this morning. Give me your attention for one second. Here's what I want you to take home. You are loved, believer. God loves you. We're going to see the work that he does through Christ, through the Spirit. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of doing. We're going to see next week, Rick has the joy of preaching the end of the chapter. You are loved. Remember that as we go through these texts. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul ends chapter 7, wretched man that I am. And I suspect that if you're a believer and you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, you can kind of relate to that feeling. I know my own sinfulness. I know the depravity of my heart. People who know me well, my parents are here, they saw me grow up, they know I'm an idiot. But even more than that, I know my thoughts. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? And Paul starts here in chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation. No condemnation. In my foolishness, in my sinfulness, in my ignorance, in my obstinance, God reached out and changed my heart. And I am no longer condemned. Somebody say amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And what is it that set us free from our condemnation? There in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set us free. In chapter 6 and 7, Paul is very clear what the law cannot do. The law cannot save you. The law cannot change your heart. But what is he saying here? What is this law of the spirit of life? I think what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out that there is a way to live life motivated by the spirit and in faith that leads to freedom in Christ. The law is a good thing. He told us that in chapter 7. And this idea is reinforced by other passages in scripture. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord... And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's a blessing in delighting in the law. Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. Another blessing in the walking in the law. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. By them your servant is warned and keeping them There is great reward. Paul is reaffirming the importance of the heart here in this passage for us. It's not in keeping the rules. It's in living empowered by the Spirit 
through following the law by the power of the Spirit, that we are freed. The law is a good thing and it brings life to those who obey in the power of the Spirit. I've attached a, a link to an article in the community group questions. Kind of talks about this topic a little bit. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as you, as you go through that. Verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Let's just walk through this verse. Who did the work here? God, right? For God has done. And what did he do? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is, a, this is an interesting phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul could have just cut that phrase out of the verse and it would read fairly similarly. Look at the verse, verse 3. By sending his own son and then skip, he condemns sin in the flesh. Pretty much the same meaning there. So why add in the likeness of sinful flesh? This word likeness has some lexical range to it. I think what Paul is saying here is it, it means more than that Jesus just looked human. Jesus had a flesh like ours. He experienced the effects of the same fallen flesh that we have, but he did not give in to the temptation. Hebrews 4 makes a big point of this. It says, because Jesus is like us, that is why we go to him in times of need. Because he understands, because he has felt pain, because he knows what it is to be betrayed, we can go to him and find comfort in our times of need. Thank you, Lord. God did the work. He sent his son. And what did that accomplish? Look at the end of verse 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 1 starts with this resounding, there is no condemnation. Well, how did that happen? Here it is at the end of verse 3. The work of Christ on the cross is what broke that condemnation. Someone has to carry the blame for our sins. If Christ hadn't done it, we would have to do that. We would have to bear that burden. But God in his mercy condemned sin at the cross and broke its power over us once and for all. Thank you, Lord. What does he mean here by in the flesh? What Paul's painting a picture of is God took sin and put it on the cross in the body of Jesus. It reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament on an event called the Day of Atonement. Uh, God tells Aaron to do this. He says he's to lay both hands on the head of a goat and confess over, all of, confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and all of their sins and put them on the goat's head. There's not a physical thing here, right? There's sins. Put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it in the wilderness. There's a picture here of the goat carrying. Side note, there were two goats. One died. Right? This one is called the scapegoat. One died. This one gets away. But he leaves bearing the burden of sins for the people. And I think that's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. God condemned sin in the flesh at the cross of Christ by placing it on the body of Christ once and for all. Again, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Verse 4, why did God do all of this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's a thought exercise. If I could snap my fingers and forgive every sin that's in your heart right now, right in this moment, every sin in your heart, and I forgave it, if I had the power to do that. Here's the thought, ready? You've still broken God's law already. You're already guilty of breaking the law. And on top of that, you'd probably go right out the door and sin again anyway. But God has fulfilled the requirement of the law in Christ on our behalf. The work of Christ on the cross has paid the full penalty for our sins. You could be the best rule follower. You could be the best law keeper. You could give it your 100%. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. If you can hear my voice this morning, hear me say this. Religion will not save you. Religion cannot save you. Even the right religion can't save you. You can come and give money and give time and do all the right things and follow all the rules. And I'm reminded of Matthew 7 where people tell Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we cast out demons and didn't we do miracles? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Religion cannot save you. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can save. Christian, listen, there's a lot to love about religion. There's a lot to love about Christianity. Community, learning, belonging, friends, family. These are all really good things. But if you are not careful, you will love Christianity more than you love Christ. And if you're not careful... You will love your salvation more than you love your Savior. May it never be so, brothers and sisters. May we never forget that it is only by the loving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we are called righteous before a holy God. Amen? Amen. Number two in our outline, the triumph of the gospel through the power of the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the, th on the, th on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
at the beginning here, verses 5 through 8, this should sound familiar to us, right? We've seen these themes already. Chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those, set their, uh, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We saw that in chapter 6 and 7. Again, Paul's writing these symphonies, coming back to these themes. He's reminding us of the work of the Spirit against the flesh. He's reminding us that we're not fighting these battles alone. The Spirit is with you. The Spirit is for you. The Spirit is fighting. Scripture says the Spirit prays utterances for us. Things we don't even know. You're not alone in your struggles. In verse 9, he says, you are in the Spirit, not the flesh. Thank you, Lord. Just here in this section, chapter 8, I mean, look at all these things that, that he's showing us the Spirit does. He sets us free. He opposes the flesh. He makes us belong. This is just one chapter. It's a short list. So I know this is also a good plug. We just wrapped up a sermon series on the Spirit. You can go back and listen to more about that. The Spirit is alive and active. He's teaching. He's guiding. He's correcting. He's comforting. He's here. He's with you. He is for you. And as amazing as that is, His work is not just for us in this life. His work for us extends into the next life as well. Look at verse 10. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. This body that's breaking, that's broken, that feels pain, that feels sorrow, it will pass. And the Spirit will raise us after this body is done to new life with a new body. I often think, you know, what's heaven going to be like? My wife and I both kind of have this anxiety that comes with the thought, and yet I torture myself with it. Best I can tell, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be just like this life. But without the bad stuff. It's going to be the good of this life without the pain, without the hurt, without the sorrow. Because sin will be no more. We see relationality. We, see we have a new body. And all of that is done by the work of the power of the Spirit, as Paul is showing us here. By the power of the Spirit, the gospel will triumph over sin and death itself. And even death will not hold the believer in the end. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The third point, the triumph of the gospel through our inheritance. Verse 8 in your text. Excuse me. Verse 11. Where are we? Verse 12. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Look at verse 12. We are debtors. To what? What has Paul already shown us that we are debtors to? Righteousness, right? We saw that in chapter 8, or excuse me, in chapter 6. Again, this should sound familiar. Verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He just said that two verses ago. The Spirit will give you life. But in 14, there's this thematic shift. Look at the verse 14. Look at the titles Paul uses to describe those who are led by the Spirit. Verse 14, he calls us sons. Verse 15, he says we're adopted. Verse 16, he calls us children. Verse 17, he calls us heirs. What did we do to deserve these titles? What did we do to deserve these roles? I mean, in chapter 1, the wrath of God is being displayed against sinfulness, right? So how do we go from being that to being a child, an heir? What is the answer? What do we do to deserve it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is by the grace of God that he has made us his children. This is the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's people. He makes us his children and he gives us an inheritance. What a privilege that is. Look at verse 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the word that Jesus used when speaking to the Father. Abba. And now we, because of our adoption, we can cry out to the Father with the same term. Abba. It's an interesting turn that Paul takes here. You didn't receive the spirit of fear, but you received the spirit of, and you would think like power, bravery, strength. No, you didn't receive fear, you received adoption. Safety, security, care in the arms of a loving father is what the Spirit brings us into. The gospel brings us from a place where we were slaves to sin and it makes us children of God. How amazing is that? But wait, there's more. Look at verse 17. If you're children, then you're heirs. You have an inheritance. Side note, again, this just keeps building for next week. You'll see the end. Keeps building. We're heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God. What does that mean? Why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? To worship, to hear the word, to learn, to fellowship. Those are all great things. But to what end? What should these things be doing for us? What should worship do for you? What should fellowship do for you? The end of these things should be that we know and love and cherish our Savior all the more. You ever known someone that you thought, man, I would 
give my left pinky to be that person's friend. You ever thought something like that? If I could just have more time with that person. One day, believers, we will be heirs of God. We will be in his presence. We will be with him, and we will be there, and he will be ours. This is wacko talk, okay? We're going to die and go into the sky and see the guy that created the universe. Yeah, that's what the Spirit will do. We won't have to be jealous for him anymore because we will see him face to face. Paul is ramping up the excellencies here, right? We're halfway through the chapter, and there's a crescendo coming that hasn't reached its peak yet. It's going to peak here at the end of the chapter, and Pastor Rick will do that. He'll lead us through that next week. As we wind down here, I just want to make three observations from the text. This is not the text anymore. This is just my thoughts, all right? I've been reflecting over the last few weeks. Just some thoughts. No, free of charge, all right? The first one, tension. Uh, theologians like to use this, this phrase, the already and the not yet. Paul talks about things in these weird, tense, he causes tensions in how he talks about things. He says things very matter-of-factly, but then there's really like a, another side of them that's not as matter-of-fact. You're dead to sin. Oh, that's awesome. Great. But you're still going to struggle. Wait, what? Why? There's a tension there. You're no longer slaves to sin. Awesome. Now you're a slave to righteousness. Oh, okay, we're still slaves. What do I, need, what do I make of that? The law, of, the, the law of the Lord is good. Great, but it makes me guilty. Ugh, not as good. As I've been thinking about this, I just realized the Christian life is one of tension. We need to embrace that. I think often we want things to be clear-cut and simple. We just want God to give us the answer, give us, give us the vision, give us the perspective. And he doesn't. And in this life, I wish Paul just wrote Romans and gave all the black and white answers. He doesn't. There's room here for tension. Just a few thoughts, right? A Republican president and a Republican Congress and House is not going to save the world from its sin. Only Jesus can do that. So until he does, we need to live as Christians and Americans. That's not easy. But we shouldn't shy away from that tension. Abolishing slavery or abortion or illegal immigration or racism or any other ideology, is, abolishing those things is not going to bring Jesus back any sooner. Don't put your faith in the resolution of those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. These are good, good activities to work for. But don't put your faith in them. God has put us here to be lights to a dark world. To show love where it's lacking and to bring peace where there is none. That brings tension with it. One more tension in life. Our thoughts and our feelings are strong. Our emotions are strong. Your upbringing, your culture, the relationships you've had, all of these things entice us to believe things that are not true. Body image, self-worth, gender identity, what is my purpose in life, 
all kinds of thoughts and feelings that we think throughout the day. There's tension there. I had a friend who got sober from alcohol. And I remember talking to them one day. And they said, man, I can't stop thinking. There's so many thoughts in my head. Is this what it's like to be sober? I said, yeah. Welcome. They said, yeah, this is why I drank. To get rid of all these thoughts. There's tension in this Christian life. But at the end of the day, it's not our feelings that are the ultimate authority. What God says is the ultimate authority. Being a Christian means constantly accepting what God says is true rather than what my feelings say is true. And that can be difficult. As Christians, we just need to get good at embracing that tension, those tensions in life. The second observation is, uh, it's actually from a book called Instruments of the Redeemer's Hands. We teach through this book here at the church. Uh, Paul Tripp uh, says this, the gospel is both a comfort and a call. The gospel is both a comfort and a call. Anybody who is, sin- is a sinner can come to the foot of the cross and be saved. Anybody who is in pain, anybody who needs comfort, it is there to be found. You're here, you're visiting, and you're not a Christian. This is the message that God brought you here to hear this morning. You don't need to be prettier. You don't need to be less anxious. You don't need to be less fearful or less lonely or married or married again or sober or smart or respected by others or better understood or, 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 or. The list can go on forever. Come as you are and find comfort at the foot of the cross Christ. He will not condemn you for your sins. He will wash them away. Amen? And yet, if we lean too much on grace, then we live life as if there is no rule. Pastor Rick is good about reminding us about these things, right? Tension again. If I just say, Jesus is going to forgive me, I can go live however I want. That's not what Paul is teaching. That's not what Scripture shows us. The gospel is a comfort, but it is also a call. A call to what? To slavery, to die to self, to live righteously, to pursue holiness, to love Christ. I don't remember where I heard this, but an analogy that the Christian life is like skateboarding uphill. If you're not pressing, you're going backwards. There is no neutral in in this walk of the Christian life. And yet again, if we lean too much on works and my effort and my doing, we fall into another ditch. We fall into the ditch of legalism. So we have to remember and keep the tension and remind ourselves it is both the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in my life that keeps me on this path. The gospel is the comfort and the call. And finally, I think this is the right word. I don't know, I couldn't find a better one. The dependability of the work of God. As we read Romans, the the thought that comes to my mind is every time he talks about what God does, it's like very matter of fact. It's very clearly stated. God did this, and then this happened. God does this, therefore that. Clear. 
But the parts where there's a little bit of ambiguity or a little bit of something left to be done, what it seems to me is just those are where we need to then act on what Paul is saying. The work of Christ, the empowerment of the Spirit, our adoption as sons, those things are sure. They're guarantees. All that's left to actually do is live those things out for us. Before we moved here, uh, I did a sprint triathlon. A triathlon is, a, is a, one event with three parts. It's a swim, a bike, and a run. And it is what it sounds like, a swim, a bike, and a run, right? But when you participate in an organized event, the organizers make it so that you don't have to worry about anything. You come early, you set your bike up, you go, to the, the, you go down to the, whatever, the body of water, you have your, your goggles on, you do your swim, and as soon as you're out of the water, somebody's directing you to the next point. Your bike is over there. Great, I go to my bike, my gear's already set up, I get on the bike and I start riding. You do your loop and you come back, park your bike here, there's people waving you in. Park your bike right here. Your shoes are over there, go put your shoes on. And you put your shoes on and you start running. And all along the way, there's water stations and energy gel packs that they're handing out. And all of these things made for your success. Everybody is here for you to succeed. All that's left for you to do is to run the race. And as I read Romans, as I've been studying, God has done all of the work for us to succeed. Every step along the way, he's guided our path with what he's done. And so we don't run the race out of obligation. We don't run the race out of duty. We run the race empowered by, God, by what God is doing for us. Out of gratitude. We'll see this in chapter 12. This is our reasonable response to what God is doing in our life. God did all the structure already. Go live that out. And it's so comforting to know that everything that God put in place will stand. I don't have to worry about that. All I have to do is go and do my part and run the race. Paul's argument is building. It's going to reach its crescendo here at the end of chapter 8. We'll have the music team come up. We go from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony to Jana Alera. We span the gamut around these parts. Uh, Jenna Alera is a Christian. She writes kids' songs. She's been at it for a long time. Um, and think about Christian kids' songs. They, they sound what you, like what you think they might sound like, right? So yesterday morning, we took our girls to a church here locally. And this was the stage. It's fun. It's, a, it's exciting. Kids are on stage dancing. And at one point, she sang this song. My kids like these songs. We play them in the car. I don't even hear them anymore. Just <laughs> play Jana. Okay, whatever. As long as it keeps you quiet back there. And the music just plays, right? At one point she sings this song. It's called Dig Down Deep. I'll dig down, I'll dig deep, down deep. She says, I'll dig deep, down deep. And there's still more. Deep, down deep. It's a well without a floor. You love me. You love me. 
You love me. Who could ask for more? And the song continues. You love me when I'm right. You love me when I'm wrong. You keep on loving me all day long. You love me when I sing. You love me when I pout. You keep on loving me. You won't run out. I sat in the back of that room and some moisture developed in my eyes. I don't know what it was because I'm a man. Just stricken by the truth of the simple confession. I pout too, not just my four-year-old. You love me when I sing, you love me when I pout, you keep on loving me. The Bible is a book full of stories and people just like you and me. Failures and successes, victories and defeats, Moment of, moments of strength and moments of weakness, moments of clarity and moments of confusion, wise decisions, poor decisions, lessons learned through humility and lessons learned through pain. But as I sat there, the truth of this song overwhelmed me. I am loved. And in Christ, we are loved. Believer, go forth this week and live so that people see what it's like to live a life free of condemnation. Show them what it looks like to be loved by the God of the universe who calls you, who you call Father. This life is short in comparison to what's coming. Go and live it in the love of our Father. Amen? Thank you, Father, for your patience, for your loving kindness, and the grace that you show us broken as we are, by giving us your love in Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.